Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Let's pray together as we shift to scripture this morning. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for how you are, who you are and how you are toward us, toward our world. Thank you for these friends in Moldova. I'm not thinking just of our team that went, but the folks that make up the ministry of beginning of life ministry who are serving day after day the needy in their community, the wounded, those who we sang about before who have experienced violence and oppression and suffering and injustice. We thank you for your spirit's life in them, their whole team, and the opportunity for our few of us to go and spend some time with them recently. We pray for our friends who are returning from Moldova and ask that you would help them to rest and receive what they need and you would lift them up and then lead them as they start to tell the stories to us and invite us into it. We thank you for your word through which you speak. So would you come again today by your spirit, anoint the teaching of your word and the listening of your people. Would you open us up to hear your voice today and would you speak, God? Amen? All right. Well, if you are just joining us, welcome. We are 10 weeks into a summer series called Steadfast Songs, A Journey Through the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms of Ascent being a collection of psalms from Psalm 120 to 134. Um, As we've said each week, these psalms are something of a pilgrim playlist, a collection of psalms that Jewish pilgrims would recite together year after year, three times a year, in fact, as they would travel together from all over Israel to Jerusalem for the annual feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. Feasts that would retell the Israelites their story, that would tell them again the story of their people and of their God, the story of God's saving action in their shared life. And in doing this, they would not just be remembering the past, but they would be invited to hope again for the present and for the future, to live today and to look forward to tomorrow with anticipation for the God who's acted in the past to continue to act, for the God who was a certain way in the past to continue to be that way, whose character was revealed in a certain way to continue to be that way. And so... As some have mentioned along the way, Jesus himself grew up with this practice. We're told in Luke 2.41 that every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the feast festival of the Passover. He grew up traveling from wherever his family lived to Jerusalem for these feasts. But as we continue to read the Gospels, we realize, maybe we haven't noticed, that Jesus is continually in Jerusalem for feasts. He circles out, life goes on, and a feast happens, and he joins the pilgrimage back into the city. Throughout his life, Jesus lived with this rhythm. But as we've, the study has noted, the destination isn't everything. The journey to Jerusalem has its own significance, its own story, its own purpose, and the Psalms of Ascent tell us that story. They invite us into that journey. 
They, serve as, they served as both their, God, their guide and ours in this recurring, familiar pilgrimage. And I want to linger on that for a moment, the recurring reality of this, the repeated pilgrimage, taking the same journey again and again, three times a year, every year for your whole life, taking your kids on it, taking your grandkids, going with your neighbors and their kids again and again and again. Some people love going new places. But there's a gift sometimes about a repeated, a familiar journey. Shortly after today, after this morning, my family and I are heading off on our own little annual pilgrimage. Some of you know, we head up to Camp Homewood on Quadra Island. It is a recurring pilgrimage in our family life. Up Island to Campbell River, hop on the ferry to Quadra Island. It's an island and a camp that we have driven to virtually every summer for the last 20 years of our lives. Carter, I owe you $5. I did not ask you if I could put your photo on here. Don't tell Olivia. She gets nothing. Just kidding. No, she's not here. She'd love it. Love that. You're probably three months old there. Yeah. No matter where we've lived, no matter where we've called home over the last 20 years, whether here, North Van, South Surrey, Cloverdale, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, we have made this annual pilgrimage virtually every summer. A pilgrimage that my parents started when back 20 years ago, but also took me when I was five and when I was six, and I worked there when I was 15. And the recurring ritual isn't just the journey here and back, but the things you do when you're there. Right? For us at camp, it's singing crazy songs that we've sung again and again. Aquatics Day, yes, that's me. Uh, building rockets and launching them on the field. I think that's one of the years where Carter's rocket won the greatest distance. Um, beaches that we drive off to at the midpoint in the week and go sit and actually slip into the water. Islands we paddle around. Even benches that we sit on after lunch across from the tuck shop where we talk our kids into sharing their candy with us that we've just bought for them, right? <laughs> Every year we do this. But there's also the quiet, the hidden practices. For me, slipping away in the morning before or after breakfast, I can't wait to do it tomorrow, with a coffee and my Bible, down to the point, down to the edge of the stage dock, overlooking Gowland Harbor, and praying once again through Psalm 23 being reminded that the Lord is my shepherd and I am just a sheep, his sheep. And he will guide me, and he will guide us. As I have virtually every summer for the last 20 years. And on the drive up, we often stop at Save On Foods in North Nanaimo, buy hummus and crackers and vegetables and drinks, and then we run next door to chapters and use the bathroom really quickly, but that's getting too personal. So we'll leave it at that. To the point. There's something powerful and formative about a journey not just taken, but taken again and again and again. And sometimes we can think of that as familiarity that loses its beauty. But sometimes a familiar journey has a way of opening up something fresh to us. We go on it for the fifth time or the tenth time or the hundredth time, and we notice something we didn't notice before. Maybe particularly because of what's gone on in us since last time we did it. I mention this because I think this is often our experience with Scripture, with familiar Scripture. 
I suspect this was often the experience for the Jewish pilgrims as they walked this pilgrimage that they had done three months before and every year before, so many times, as they turned corners and crested hills that they'd been to so many times before, as they revisited and sung again 15 psalms that they have sung every time they've done this journey. Over the years, they might have learned these psalms by heart, and I wonder, as they did, how often as they recited these familiar psalms, crested these familiar corners, they found something fresh in the psalm hitting them, speaking life to them or within them. Sometimes we need the familiar paths to take us back to places we've been to but never been awake to, or to face things that we've been unable to face. And today we journey, rejoin the pilgrims in Psalm 130. If you have a Bible, open it with me to Psalm 130. My Bible, it's pretty much dead in the middle. But don't just turn to the middle page. Psalm 130. Um, this is a psalm that I have known a little bit since my teens. I have a faint memory of writing a song to this psalm when I was in high school. It was a prayer that really resonated with me. Now, if I'm honest, I've often thought of this psalm as a psalm of waiting. Uh, verse 5 and 6 has a verse many of us know. It says, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Do you want to move the slide there? Yeah. But as I've lived in this psalm over this past week, prayed it, studied it, I've realized that the waiting in this psalm is not primary. It's about something else. The waiting is about waiting for redemption from sin and its consequences. In truth, this isn't a psalm of waiting. It's a psalm of repentance or a penitential psalm, as it's commonly known. There's seven of them within this altar. It's a psalm that I needed when I was 16, and I still need today. Because sometimes the familiar paths are the ones that we need, right? So can we stand and read this psalm together as we have many of these weeks? I'll invite you to read the bold parts and I'll read the rest. And what is gonna be on the screen is the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version. I often read from the NIV, but sometimes translations are different and helpful and I find this a better translation. So Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. 
Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. If you've spent any time with the Psalms, this opening line, line feels familiar. It feels like a psalm, right? If someone were to say, hey, hey, Lewis, can you just read us a verse? And you flipped it open and you read that line. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. People would instantly know it's a psalm. We're in the psalms. I don't know which one, but we're in the psalms. It feels like a psalm. The, the psalms often speak from the depths, at least implicitly. But this psalm does explicitly. And the Hebrew word here evokes the image of deep waters and not in a serene moment sitting on the edge of the, the, the stage looking out at Gallon Harbor, but a terrifying moment, a life hanging in the balance, depths, depths of distress, depths of darkness, a place and experience that causes one to cry out to God for mercy, for rescue, for redemption. Oh Lord, hear my cry. I am in the depths and I don't think I'll make it. That's Psalm 130, verse one. The NIV translates the last word in verse two as mercy. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy, which isn't in the Hebrew text, but it is what the verse implies. This is a cry, a petition for mercy. God, don't give me what I deserve. Mercy, Lord. Show me mercy. Now, verse 1 and 2 don't tell us the nature of the trouble that's led the psalmist to be in the depths, with life hanging in the balance. But it tells us enough, enough to know that it isn't the kind of trouble that can be remedied with just some deeper resolve or better thinking or a good night's sleep or a few good devotional times. This isn't that kind of trouble. This is the kind of depths of distress that requires the help, the radical intervention of another, and not just any other, but Yahweh, the Lord, the rescuing God of Israel, the God whose very name, Yahweh, tells the story of mercy and rescue and grace, the story of the Exodus. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Yahweh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications, to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Here in verse three, the psalmist gets honest and specific, inviting us to understand the nature of the trouble they're facing the source of their distress, the reason they're crying out in the depths and why in the next verse they are going to wait on the Lord. In contrast to last week's psalm, Siobhan wonderfully took us into Psalm 129, which led with the line, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth and gave us words for prayer when we are suffering at the hands of others. Psalm 130 gives us words for prayer when we are suffering at the hands of our own sin. When we suffer when the suffering we experience has come at our own hands, when our own sin threatens to undo us. O Lord, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? I suspect this is why I knew Psalm 130 when I was a teenager. For all the adventures of my teen years, those were also years where I became freshly, powerfully aware of the sin that so easily entangled me. 
The sin that no matter how much I wished it away seemed to always be with me. To show up with me, in me, wherever I went, whatever I was doing, as much as I try to leave it behind. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand, or as I learned it in my teens from the NIV, if you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? What a humbling thought. Imagine that. If all of my sins, all of yours, all of ours, just us right here, were kept in a ledger. This is the depth that the psalmist is caught in, the depths that the pilgrim feels and that causes them to cry out to the Lord, an accumulated or pressing or both, an accumulated and pressing awareness of their sin and the death and the distress it brings to them and to others. But the fact that this is included in the Psalms is significant because it means that it's not just the pilgrim and the psalmist confession, it is a confession we need. That there is, this is a terrifying depth that all of us at times experience and find ourselves in needing to cry out more often than we'd like to admit, right? Not just, yeah, back when I was a teen, I was a sinner. And that's, I think, the gift of this, not just being in the Psalms, but being in the Psalms of Ascent, because it tells us that this is a psalm, a confession, an honesty we need to come back to again and again and again. Not just in our teens, though, yes, but in our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and on and on, and not just once a decade, right? Can you imagine if we did that? Sorry, friends, I can't go out tonight. This is my, what do you call it? What's the word for not annual, but a decade? Decadinal? <laughs> yes. I can't hear you well, so that's my problem. 45 years. Once a decade, night of repentance. No. This is like one of the reasons that Jesus includes confession and the request for forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer, Right? Prayer that Jesus teaches all of his disciples to pray according to. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. Why? Why does Jesus include this in the, his basic course on prayer? Because as much as we need daily bread or we're not going to make it, we need daily forgiveness or we're not going to make it. So let's just pause here and let me ask you honestly, is this psalm speaking for you today, are you in need of mercy? And not just a bit of mercy, and not just fresh resolve, but deep mercy. Mercy from on high, the compassionate action of God. That's a good definition of mercy. The compassionate rescuing action of God. Forgiveness, redemption, restoration. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications, to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. With you. With you. This is an invasion of mercy right here with you, with me, with me. Again and again, I end up in the depths. 
Again and again, I find the depths in me. With me, wherever I go, there my sin follows me. My temptations hound me. I sat with a young Christian recently, seeking God on the cusp of returning home after a season away somewhere else and heard their confession and this fear in them of what is going home with them, in them, and what home allows them to do again because of what lives in them, with them. Verse one to three are a confession of what is too often with us. Sinful habits, fallen affections, distorted desires, needs, hungers, responses, motivations. And though it's hard to have it named in the psalm, it's a grace because the psalmist's honesty invites our honesty. If our sin is to ever be covered over, it needs to be uncovered through confession. And the psalmist knows it and names it. That we too know these depths and why, that we too need rescuing mercy from God. But in the midst of this humbling confession, in verse four, the psalmist, the pilgrim, calls out with a greater confession, a confession that gives hope for the depths of our sin and consequences. In the wake of all that the psalmist has said about what is with them, the psalmist, our fellow pilgrim, confesses, but there is forgiveness with you, with you, Whereas the NIV translates it, but with you there is forgiveness. With you, with you, again and again. With you, oh, with me, but with you. And a few verses later, the psalmist expands his confession, celebrating that with the Lord, there is not just forgiveness, but there is steadfast love. And with him is full redemption or great power to redeem or bounteous redemption, some translations have loved to say over the years. Though with me and with us, there is a deep undercurrent of sin and self-seeking with you, with you, O Lord. There is forgiveness. There is steadfast, unfailing love. There is full redemption, great power to redeem with you. It's just two words in English. In Hebrew, it's just a single preposition, im. But it says so, something so deep and fundamental about God's mercy and grace to those who cry out. And it's this, that these things, forgiveness, steadfast love, the hope of full redemption are not merely things that God does or gives, but they are with him. They are inseparable from who he is. If God shows up, if Yahweh shows up, these things show up with him. Always. Some of us, when we grapple with, feel our own sin, we are afraid to draw near to God, afraid of what will come in the room with him. But it's a lie. The psalmist announces to us, declares to us, with him. Whenever God shows up, this is what comes with him because this is who God is. With you, there is forgiveness. With the Lord is steadfast love, unfailing love, unwavering love. With him is full redemption, great power to redeem, so that you may be revered. 
sure some older translations say simply feared. The NIV has it so that we can with reverence serve you. Which might seem like an odd result, response, or outcome to the kindness of God's mercy. Fear, reverence, really. We might expect the psalmist to say, but there is forgiveness with you, therefore we are so thankful. There is forgiveness with you, so I will write a song. Because that's what we do. There is forgiveness with you, so I worship you or I love you or something like that. But two things need to be said here, and you know this, many of you. First, contrary to how we hear and use the word fear in our day and culture, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew imagination, the fear of the Lord is not a cowering, terrifying, recoiling, run from posture or response to God, but it is a good, beautiful, wise, drawing near to bow down, acknowledging that Yahweh the Lord is God and we are not, which flows into the second thing about the fear of the Lord, that sin is what happens when our hearts turn from the fear of the Lord. In truth, this is not the essence of sin. Our hearts continual attempt to displace God from the throne, to take the throne even, and to make God our servant. God, you better do this for me or out with you, right? Which is why it makes sense and is in fact a true sign of God's rescuing mercy at work when our hearts and our lives bow in reverent fear of God and honest confession of the depths of our sin and our need for mercy but there's forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. Finally, we come to verse five and six, the part I used to try to write a song chorus to. And, and can we pause? We can stay seated. I want us to recite the psalm up to this point again. Again, join for the bolds. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. Much could be said, much has been written about these two verses, but what strikes me above all is how this is simply a fitting response to a heart turned back toward God, bowing to God, a heart and a life being restored by the gospel in humble reverence before God and in gratitude for God, for who God is, for what is with him, what is in him, we learn to surrender our will to his will and our doing to his doing. We learn to wait, to wait on the one whose presence and whose action is most needed. Sometimes sin is simply us in impatience rushing in to bring something about. And repentance involves, paired with our confession, bowing and learning to wait on the one whose presence and whose action 
is most needed. To wait on the Lord for the Lord's doing, for the Lord's work, for the Lord's restoring action, for the Lord's redeeming mercy. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. I love that the psalmist chooses this image of a night watch person. I've always imagined and resonated with the ache of the wait, the hunger for morning, and maybe that's because I kind of fell for this psalm in my teens, and teens are known for earnestness. But this time around, as I come again to this familiar refrain, what catches me is the confident expectation of this, the unshakable conviction that the morning's coming. It's coming. It's coming. There is no doubt. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who wait for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. It is going to happen. Um, many of you know uh, the preachers in this series we've been using, um, learning from Eugene Peterson in his classic book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, a study on the Psalms of Ascent. And it's brilliant. Most of the time, uh, I've been saying to the, the teachers in this series, don't rely have, too heavily on Peterson because sometimes he goes in his own way. And honestly, this chapter on Psalm 130, he went his own way. It's a good chapter. I just don't think it's Psalm 130. Uh, but in the midst of it, he has this moment where he talks about the fact that for a season of his education, he worked as a night watchman. He's lived in this. Has anyone else ever been night watchman? He worked in a building. There was like a few people working and stuff. And his job was to make sure not, the building didn't fall apart overnight or a coup happened or something. But he says at the end of this extended reflection, he says, dawn always came. It always came. I, didn't, I never did anything, never constructed anything, never made anything happen. I waited and I watched and I hoped. And the dawn always came. Derek Kidner, wise Old Testament scholar, simply summarizes his thoughts with these words. He says, night may seem endless, but morning is certain, and it's time determined. Why? Why is it certain? Because God's character is assured. As the psalm declares, with me, so much shifting, so much uncertainty, or maybe things that are certain that I wish they weren't, but with you, with you, O oh Lord, there is forgiveness, steadfast love, great power to redeem. And these things are not just things that God does or gives, but they are inseparable from who God is. With you, with you, there's forgiveness, steadfast love, great power to redeem. These are indelibly and irrevocably integral to who God is. Whenever, wherever God shows up, this is what shows up with him because this is what is in him, even when what is in you is your deepest shame. And so the psalmist concludes by turning from honest and hopeful confession to bold exhortation and invitation to the people of God, to all Israel, to us. Verse seven and eight. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is steadfast love and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. 
And so I say to you, O Israel, O people of God, O friends, fellow pilgrims, all you who find yourselves in the depths at times, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe again, hope in the Lord and in his word, in what has been revealed of him to you, to us. Let this psalm be an invitation to you today to confess your sin, yes. You must and you can, you can because of what is in him. With hope, with hope for forgiveness and mercy and redemption. Why? Because of who God has revealed and proven himself to be in the experience of the psalmist, but more than that, through the story of God's work in history, and more than that, especially through the life and the ministry and the sacrificial death of Jesus, who on the cross went to the depths, right? That's what scripture teaches us. That's what the church has confessed through all the ages. On the cross, Jesus went to the depths for our sin, took it to hell, that he might cast our sin into the depths. Hear these words, Micah, chapter seven and verse 19. It's the very last portion of Micah's writing. He says of God, you will again have compassion on us. You will again, again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is what Yahweh, God, in Jesus, longs to do for you and in you to redeem you from the depths and cast your sin there. So come, the psalmist implores us. Come, Jesus, the one who's gone to the cross for our sin, implores us, invites us, come and bow and confess all that is with you to the one in whom and with whom there is forgiveness, steadfast love, and great power to redeem. There is nothing to fear with him.